0: I wanted to be the hero of my adventure. I wanted to be in the mystery of it all. And it shifted, something in me shifted where I thought, no, this is, I'm lucky, not the people who who can drink, which is what I felt so deeply into my being for so long. And that's where it came from. And, And I really do feel that way now.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. And today's guest is Laura McCowan. Laura is a best selling author of We Are the Luckiest, the host of Tell Me Something True podcast, and CEO and founder of The Luckiest Club, a global sobriety support community. She's been featured on WebMD, The New York Post, Bravo, and The Today Show, and much, much more. Laura's goal is simple she wants to help you fall in love with being alive. Laura, we are lucky to have you on our show today. Welcome.
0: Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So we always just dive right in and we want to know for you, what was growing up for you like?
0: Growing up for me, I grew up in Colorado in a pretty white bread, suburban town. I had divorced parents and the oldest of two, and I grew up around people that drank a lot as just regular course of business. I my family owned a restaurant for 10 years and I, you know, I had a pretty, there was stuff, there was definitely some trauma and difficulty, but I had a pretty regular American kid existence. I grew up in the same town, lived there for, until I left for college, went to school in Colorado and then moved out to Boston when after undergrad. And yeah, I played sports. I was, I would say that sort of when I think about how I grew up, the defining part of my personality, I would say that stemmed from really from my parents getting divorced was I was hyper attuned to everyone else's feelings and emotions and really, and that spread through my friend group and everything, just wanting to make sure that I kept the peace and everybody was okay. So that, That shaped a lot of my childhood and contributed a lot to my drinking, for sure. I think that's the reason I really started was just I didn't feel okay. I didn't feel... I couldn't... The demands of the external world and how that manifested internally for me were just too stressful. I had to... That stress had to go somewhere.
1: Can you talk about some early or an early memory of pain or some early struggles that you had?
0: Yeah. The earliest memories of struggle that I had were when my parents got divorced, I was about six. And my my dad, by his own admission, is a very difficult, complicated person. (laughs) And I learned that I had to pretend, shapeshift basically to avoid his anger. I had to really be hyper attuned to his moods. And there wasn't much space for me to be who I was. That wasn't safe it wasn't welcomed and that was understandably really painful for me the way i experienced that was really low self esteem like i just whoever you told me i was was who i was and so i could be ping-ponged throughout the day <laughs> from moment to moment based on what your feelings about me were and for a kid that's devastating you know i have a 12 year old and she luckily is very self-possessed. She has a good s- sense of the ground and who she is, but I did not. And that, that was really painful as a child or as an adult. If you don't have a strong sense of self and your mood is determined and your your not just your mood, but your sense of okayness is determined by the outside world. I'm going to be in pain all the time. And I remember that really, really young.
1: I feel like, in the last couple months, Darren and I, we've talked a lot about the four agreements and I feel like I'm saying yeah. this on many of our episodes and in, in, in different areas. But one area in the book in the beginning is this idea of domestication where people tell us certain things or they tell us who we are or, and we just agree. We agree because they're our parents or because that's the teacher. So you had said like, I was whoever people told me I was. What did that look like? Like, what was the domestication process? And then how did that show up and impact you later on?
0: Yeah, great question. One of the things I was told is that I was so strong and so resilient. And I was told that because I swallowed sadness. I swallowed pain. I, swall- I presented very well, no matter what was going on between my mom and my dad there were 10 marriages and divorces over the course of you know my childhood and early adulthood and that's a, that's a ton of turbulence and change you, know, you think your family's one thing and now it's not and let's go through that again and let's go through that again and you get connected to a certain person and then that person's gone and i learned that the best way to avoid the discomfort of other people was to pretend that I was okay and to put on, to perform and put on a good face. And what I got told about that from a really young age was that I was so strong and so resilient. And I didn't, I thought that I was, you know, and I I thought that I had to perform that all the time. And we all know that that's not strength and resilience. That's repressing repressing and that's stuffing and that's hiding. And that doesn't come, (laughs) that doesn't turn out well. So one of the things I got told was that I was strong and resilient. And another thing I got told uh, was that I I was simultaneously too sensitive. You know, the classic sort of girl messages, you know, don't be, don't be such a girl. (laughs) (laughs) That your, your emotional sensibility and your perception of things isn't valuable. Shape up type stuff.
1: Had to be hard trying to find the balance between those two. Were oh yeah, there,
0: there, there is none. You know, you don't. How do you do that? There, there wasn't one. I mean, that's an impossible place. I've been really obsessed with this. I don't know if you're familiar with it. The uh, Winnicott, who's a psychoanalyst in the 1960s, came up with this concept of the the true self versus the false self. The true self is, is like if you think of it, the how babies behave when they're hungry, they cry. When they're when they're upset, they cry. When they want to be held, they ask to be held they feel something and they express it. They express the need for it. And that's the the true spontaneous expression of the true self is like that. And we develop false selves when our needs aren't getting met. And it's not all bad. We need to develop false selves to really conduct ourselves in the world and the, and at work and in different roles. But the expression when the expression of a false self overshadows the true self or when you don't really ever have a grasp of the true self the false self takes over and it leads to extraordinary feelings of loneliness and depression and anxiety and isolation because you're essentially trying to hold all these lies up right which is like what we're talking about trying to hold all these images of yourself up that somewhere you know aren't real and so you're always performing and no surprise that leads to things like addiction because the pain of that is too great.
1: Can't help but go back in those days when I was living in that place and how tiring it was, how exhausting it was to really, you know, to to, to be somebody that you're not. Really just living a lie, complete dishonesty and inauthenticity.
0: Yeah, and you know it consciously or unconsciously. you, You know that. I think most people are actually unconscious of that. They know that they don't feel right. They don't feel good, but they don't necessarily know why or how to get there. Because a lot of times we built these entire lives around this performance, you know, our relationships and our jobs and our work and everything is built on this. So to to denounce it, (laughs) it's like, well, I got to blow up my life, right? So we do other things instead.
1: Who would you say your first real teacher was?
0: Hmm. That's a great question. And I knew you were going to ask it and still I didn't have a good answer. I, I know there were teachers like my grandmother comes to mind just as someone who was very much herself, even though who she was, was sometimes hard to be around and not to, and not pleasurable to other people. And that I noticed that and yet she was still herself. So that was a teacher. But I think the the real first teach I found my teachers in books. Like I really retreated into books and I would say one of my first teachers, real teachers that is still, I still listen to her all the time is Pema Chodron, uh, the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist, who really, I started to gravitate towards 20 years ago, maybe longer. And because I was searching for something and her... I've, I've always been very attracted to Buddhism and the idea of presence and how that might just being able to accept the moment as it is, this being some way through. Then she continues to be a teacher of mine.
2: Well, Laura, I want to you
0: know
2: I I I acknowledge you first for allowing me to be a guest on your show.
0: And oh, yes. I know.
2: Space of, you know, of honesty and acceptance. and Yeah. You know, we try to do a similar thing here to, you know, paint a a real picture of our lives and our stories and showing that our adversity is there and it hurts and it may be a lot, but, you know, in turn, it usually turns out to be an experience that teaches us the most about ourselves and something that we can look back upon as valuable. So I want to ask you, what was the greatest moment of adversity that you faced in your life and what were some of the emotions and just things that you were feeling in that time?
0: I would say the greatest moment of adversity was at the end of my drinking when it really hit the wall. And there were a lot of things that made it so painful, but the the moment it really came to a head, so to speak, was when I left my daughter in a hotel room. She was four years old overnight. At a wedding, my brother's wedding, because I was blackout drunk. And I woke up the next morning next to a stranger and not with my daughter, who I was sharing a bedroom with. And so if she wasn't with me, where was my sweet kid? Right. She luckily was, my family found her. She had wandered out of the hotel room and my family found her and in the middle of the night and she's okay and everything was fine. But that was and still is the the most difficult moment that I faced because who I had, I had created an, an entire life. The performance that I've been talking about of being okay and holding it up and yeah, presenting well. I mean, I had a really good job. I was successful. I had plenty of people that wanted to be around me. and family and friends who loved me and I was dying inside and was so out of control and steeped in my addiction that I had put in jeopardy the the most important thing in my life, which which was my daughter. And I couldn't reconcile the, the reality of that. And it it was the most difficult time of my life because I didn't stop drinking after that. I couldn't. I just was too mired in it and untangling myself from addiction between that time in 2013 and a year plus later was the most difficult thing i've ever done by far not just extracting myself from the physical addiction but but way more so the emotional and psychological addiction and facing all the reasons that i had drank to begin with and all the pain it was lonely Exceedingly lonely. It was, you know, as they talk about, it was the dark night of the soul, and it lasted for about an, <laughs> a year and a half. You know, I was really in purgatory. I had one foot in drinking and one foot in sobriety, and I really didn't want to get sober despite knowing that I would lose my daughter. I was this close to losing her, despite ha- almost losing my job as a single mom. And uh, the reality of that was just excruciating right? Knowing I want, I I couldn't figure out how to want something that it was so obvious to me that I should want.
2: Wow. I can relate to so many things that you just said right there, especially uh, one talking about having your job and your accomplishments and people wanting to be around you and thinking that that was enough of a shield to kind of keep you from getting hit with too many arrows. You could keep doing what you were doing. Like I was in the league and people wanted to be around me and I was, you know, my resume on paper looked great, but it wasn't keeping me from destroying my own life. And uh, at some point, it's like, man, the story that's going on in my head, this narrative, it it has to change. Like, I can't keep doing this. And then also, you're talking about the untangling of the addiction. And it's not just like stopping the drinking. It's like, you know, I drink for a reason. It's getting to the, getting into those reasons and sitting with those reasons and being like, wow, like, all right, like now that I'm here, and I know these things, like, what, what am I going to do about it? What am I, am I going to keep running from it? Am I going to keep, you know, doing the same thing or am I going to face it and change? And, you know, I see it took you like a year and a half to like, want to get sober and like seeing your book title, like you're like talking about, you say you're the luckiest, like when Mm -hmm. did you start to feel (laughs) that lucky feeling when it came to your addiction and your sobriety?
0: Yeah, that's, a great question because I certainly did not feel lucky. It felt like a death sentence, as it feels to most people. I, you know, in that time of purgatory, I did taste a lot of sobriety. I started to see what it was like to wake up without a hangover. I started to feel what my brain felt like when I wasn't fighting the anxiety and fatigue and severe depression of a of constantly being hungover and. You know, I had my first sober weekend. I had my first sober birthday. (laughs) I actually had a lot more sober days in that time than I did days where I was drinking or recovering from drinking. And so I started to taste what it was like. And in that time, I never put together 30 days. I never even put together more than a couple of weeks. But finally, it caught, so to speak. And early into that, like I would say 30, 60 days or something, I was laying. There with my daughter one night. She was so she was five or so at the time, and I had, you know, the the daily slog was just getting through a day at that point and not drinking was like all the success I could hope for, and and sometimes like, Herculean defeat to just get there, and I had a really I had a hard day, and I remember crying. I don't remember why I was laying in bed and my daughter had just gone to sleep. And despite being emotionally upset, I had clean sheets. I was not putting my daughter or myself in danger. There would be no new destruction in the morning. I had survived a bad feeling and I was still there. And I just remember feeling like, oh, this is what I wanted. Like I wanted this direct experience of life. I wanted to be the hero of my adventure, I wanted to be in the mystery of it all. And it shifted, something in me shifted where I thought, no, this is, I'm lucky, not the people who who can drink, which is what I felt so deeply into my being for so long. And that's where it came from. And And I really do feel that way now. I really do. I'm almost seven years sober. And so it's those days, it's good to talk about these, those days because they feel sometimes far away. But it changed, you know, it changed my baseline forever. All the things I, I thought I was chasing in alcohol were what I actually got being sober. And and that wasn't just something I can say out loud. It was, it's like a, it changed me. It changed that going through that as an experience, not as like some intellectual exercise changed me all the way through.
2: It's amazing how, you know, if we get out of self-destruct mode that, you know, we're able to find purpose and you know meaning in our own lives. And mm-hmm. you know, I wanna ask you as now as a as an author and as a podcast host and a CEO and founder, what has the journey of finding purpose for you been like in sobriety and you know, how fulfilling is that for you today?
0: I mean it's it's really everything and the things you just listed, being an author, being a CEO, being a podcaster are all parts I would say of the expression of my potential say, but they're not, but, but so is the fact that I can show up to pick up my daughter on time from school and show, And so is the fact that I can show up here and not make an excuse for why I couldn't or whatever. So is the fact that I can put gas in my car and pay the electricity bill and that my daughter feels safe even if I'm boring to her, which she tells me all the time, she's safe. So that is as much, I, I, well, I, I'm i making that clarification because I don't, I think a lot of times we think purpose has to be some big thing that people need to step into and fulfill and it needs to be extraordinary in the eyes of the outside world. But it doesn't. The purpose is the day to day, the moment to moment fulfillment of how you could show up and meeting that that moment. And I think that's really important for people. I find just as much purpose in the f- six hours I sat here and tried to write two paragraphs to just express an idea for a piece that I'm writing. That actually feels better in some sense. It's more sustainable and more fulfilling than the the published piece that will go up in the New York Times, which will give me this great hit to dopamine and accolades and all that. But it's the practice of it's a practice, right? And maybe you feel that way too as an athlete. I don't know. Like winning games is great. There's glory in that, right? But I know from talking to you that just being able to show up and and show up fully, you know, like really be there when you're there, and to see what's possible for you in this role as an athlete, and then show up for people in recovery and all that. That's it's the, it's the stuff that goes largely unseen and unnoticed and undocumented day after day that feels the best. It's a harder sell though. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love, I love how you say it's a practice where even being in purpose is a practice, but what, what we practice grows stronger. That's why I love setting intentions, why I love yoga and even talking about yoga where it's so much more than just the pose. It's about the transition from pose to pose clothes and how we mm-hmm. move you know, from mm-hmm. posture to posture where everything, and if if we're practicing with intention, if we're practicing purpose, if we're doing it on our mat, it starts to show up off of our mat. And I also like how you said it doesn't have to be this big thing. It's really about figuring out our gifts or figuring out our natural gifts and talents and really what I always like to say, like what breaks our heart more than anything, and then going towards that and serving serving that community or serving that area.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. One of the quotes that I I read that really changed my life was the Gospel of St. Thomas. I read it in this book called The Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope. And this is the line is, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I think it's that. You only really know what might be in you and you only know it's like yoga know, practice is such a, I'm, I'm a, a yogi too. And it's such a, a great metaphor for all of it because only you know the feeling of meeting the moment. It's, a, it's private. It's between you and God. As far as I'm concerned, whatever you want to call God, I do believe in the, in the gospel of Thomas what Well, he's not talking about yoga, but in yoga, in yogic texts and yogic wisdom, it's a concept of dharma, stepping into your blueprint of what, you know, your, your unique blueprint of what you could be, and, and that that's actually a responsibility. You know, the story of Arjuna and Krishna is about stepping into the responsibility that you have been given of being yourself, which is very different than, say, a lot of our modern concepts of, you know, passion and potential and hustle and all that it's not it's not that
1: well and to paraphrase your quote what i heard in that is like what if we don't get it out whatever's inside of us is going to eat us up from the inside out That's and right. here's three people talking publicly about our sobriety and listening to you talking about what which was probably a very shameful moment of leaving your daughter in that room but it's, I say this all the time, I did some very, very shameful things also, but the more that I just talk about it, mm-hmm. like all that shame just kind of falls away because I'm actually yeah. helping somebody else when I'm doing it. And even hearing your honesty, and you know I don't know how many times we replay these things that we did in our head over and over again, but this is the beauty of community and connection and why some type of support groups work because then we end up seeing ourselves and other people. And then it bankrupts the story of, I'm alone, I'm messed up, I'm unique, nobody understands.
0: yeah, Bankrupting is a good way to put that. It sort of extricates the meaning that we've placed upon those things that we've done and places it in a much larger concept, which if you spend time with people who have been through something hard, you no know, nothing surprises you anymore. It's like, yeah, we're all capable of everything. you can see that so clearly, all the light, all the dark, we're all capable of it, and so no, you're not special. That you've, that you've done something terrible, you're not. What's special is, or what's extraordinary is, is to allow yourself the grace to let it go, to make meaning of it.
1: In the book, you talk about how we all have a thing. Can you mm-hmm. touch on that a little bit more and what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, the right from almost the beginning of, of my own reckoning with the alcohol addiction, I had this sense that, it's almost, it was almost a sense of injustice that, that I knew it was a, it was a bigger story than like, Laura has a problem with alcohol and Laura is an alcoholic. Like, yes, that was true. I am a person who can't drink safely, but I looked around and it was like, all. Oh, I don't know if you can cuss on this show, but like, we're all fucked in some way. We're all attached. We're all, we all have a thing that owns us, or many things that own us, that we, whether it's the divorce we're going through, or the trauma that we can't, that that keeps us stuck, or the smoking, or porn, or, like, we're all addicted. It's the most ordinary story of humanity. We are addicted. We become addicted. And so, I wanted to normalize this idea that that alcohol addiction, especially because we sort of villainize addiction, especially substance addiction, that it's not even that special. It's just a thing like any other thing. And it just so happened to be mine. And thus the concepts of recovering and facing it, telling the truth, acceptance, grace, they apply to everybody. It's not, yes, I can speak specifically to the experience of alcohol addiction because that's what I went through, but the meta story is, applies to everybody. I think that's good news. Again, it, goes, it speaks back to that. that uh, what you were just saying about you're not, we're not that unique. You're not, ter- you're not uniquely terrible. <laughs> you're just another human having a hard time with something.
1: Well, and the fact that we all have a thing or I always say like common humanity says that pain is part of the shared human experience and that we're if you're a human, you're going to suffer, you're going to go through struggles. Mm-hmm. And so this is actually what connects us all. I mean, that's, that's the common right. bond when we get into, we have to step into a 12-step meeting or we go somewhere and someone has that same struggle. That is the bond, uh, mm-hmm. the common peril that actually connects us.
0: That's right, exactly. So the idea of us all having a thing to me is like, it's an equalizer it's like yeah so you have a thing i have a thing darren has a thing like okay so here we go let's let's look at our things you know and and as i have experienced in getting sober from alcohol other i had to it it, it was never about the thing it's the underlying stuff and i would bounce from thing to thing to thing to thing unless i until i dealt with the underlying stuff
2: yeah I mean, when I hear you talk about things, it's like it's crazy how, you know, with drugs and alcohol, like somebody can see me and like see the destruction that my using is causing and can be like like no, that's bad, like you need to go get help for it. Whereas (laughs) if somebody has like an Amazon Prime addiction or you know Alcoholism
0: is the most socially acceptable.
2: Yeah, they could keep they keep buying things and it's like, Oh wow, like you have a lot of nice things. Oh, you, you look really you look really nice with all these clothes that you're buying. And it's like their thing can be celebrated and have like some like false sense of security or like, you know, Hey, I'm really doing something here with that. (laughs) Whereas now I'm grateful that, you know, mine had to, like, I had to go get that help for mine. Like I had to develop new practices, new principles, new processes in order for me to turn my life around where there are some people that are just kind of like floating along. And it's like, you know, not even addressing it or aware of it. So I'm grateful for that awareness of mine. Same. uh, And I want to ask you, you know, what what are you most grateful for today?
0: Oh man, it sounds trite and hyperbolic, but I am, I would say gratitude is in sort of a blanket that over everything that I experience because it's all relative to what was. Right, and so I can be grateful for small things and big things. I'd say what I'm most grateful for today, we'll say, I'm grateful that I can that I'm okay in any in any moment, even when it's not okay. I can find a way to be okay, and I can be where I am. You know, when when before we started recording, I was talking about social media. And how that I've seen the parallels between alcohol addiction, social media for me. And the primary way I saw that was it took away my ability to be present. And if you're not, if you're not there, that is, you know, that is, that's addiction. That's for me, that, that was the painful place. It's just an, an inability, a discomfort with being wherever I was. And I can, I can do that today more often than not. I can be really satisfied with just in an in everyday moment. It can be enough.
2: I feel like I can always create some better scenario in my mind yeah. Uh, yeah. going into something like, and it would always be better. But then, you know, when it comes, it's never like it, like I had imagined it in my mind because I'm just trying to force something too much. I'm trying to exert my power over it instead of letting power come through things happening the way that they should happen. So that is uh, yeah, uh, it's definitely something that resonates with me
0: yeah and just uh, I've been thinking a lot in the past year or two, especially about like what is enough like what is enough success what is enough relationship you know intimacy what is enough what is like what is enough on how many instagram followers is enough, how much money is enough, how much fame is enough how much how much of a house is enough you know and to me I'm sure we all know <laughs> that the the disease of more is where is like what we know pretty well, and how how much that can erode every minute of your day if you allow it to. And when nothing is enough, it's really it's a scary place to be. It's an exhausting place to be. So I'm very grateful that I have more moments than not where I feel like this is more than enough.
1: Darren and I talk about the not enough story quite often yeah and was reminding each other and and the people we 're working with that the only you know the only story that matters is one you tell yourself so if you're not enough and i've actually heard you say it, how it's amazing how far we'll go to admit to avoid admitting we're not in pain so it's like that not enough, which is a it's a painful place to be, drives us to on the outside, which looks like a lot of success looks mm-hmm. like a lot of money and material things, but ultimately if that's the story we're telling ourselves or if we're still in pain because somebody told us we're not enough and we've just believed it our whole lives, then we end up empty even with all of that stuff
0: yeah and I, I you know I would love to hear you all like talk about that because you're both in public both public people who has have no opportunities for for to to claim fame and and your prestige and feedback from how successful you are. So how do you how do you talk yourself through that? Because it's something I've struggled with a lot. Like no, it's not good enough that I'm sober and that I wrote a book, which was my life stream and that it sold 70,000, 100,000 copies, whatever. That's not good enough. I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I want to be as popular or as successful as this author. I want the next thing. I want the next thing. I want the next thing. Like, How do you work with that in your own lives?
2: Recently for me, you know, I found out that I have to mindfully practice self-acknowledgement. Uh, you know, I feel like I made a decision when I was younger you know, I was pretty quiet and sensitive that I was going to go so opposite of the way of ego or like, you know, just kind of like cockiness or loud arrogance that Mm. I went to the complete other end of the spectrum where it was, you know, not showing myself any love for the things that I was doing, or for the progress that I have made. So it's like, you know, when things get pretty overwhelming, like they have like in the last couple of weeks for me, actually, it's like, all these things are happening. And all these things are blessings and good things that are happening is the the weight of the opportunities that that are overwhelming me, and I can't see them as blessings because I haven't allowed myself to be like, "Hey, man, like this is a way better set of problems than what you used to have like, mm. you know the things that you've been doing have allowed you to be in this space, and being in this space not only is better for you but it's better. Make a better world for your family, for the people that are looking to you for inspiration or look to you as far as, you know, gaining perspective on life, like your impact is growing. And so when I'm not acknowledging myself for the progress I have made along the way, things, my problems are great problems, but I still can see them like I did back when, you know, I was in my addiction seeing my problems back then if I don't have the right perspective.
1: Got it. Yeah, I think it's the same. I mean, me and Darren, we've been talking about this a lot, even in our individual sessions the last few weeks of the practice of self-acknowledgement. I was the exact same way, where it's really hard for me to receive acknowledgement. And that's just like childhood stuff that it's too long of a story to get into here. But just to, to really, when I would get acknowledged for certain things to diminish it. And so being in the practice of writing like three things that i'm proud of myself for today mm-hmm. and the really awkward work is to do mirror work where you're actually looking at yourself in the mirror and saying like oh. i'm proud of you for this i know it's yeah. like most of <laughs> but no one else is even in the house but it's still All like right. No, like, i know we can't get over ourselves but it's like <clears throat> these are the practices right and they say what if you speak something out loud it's 10 times more powerful than if you just think it so, mm-hmm. just being able to positively acknowledge ourselves, we're not great at as, at acknowledging as humans as it is, acknowledging each other or and definitely not acknowledging ourselves, yeah, just doing something different and, and writing it out or verbalizing it and saying it out loud is as, has helped me a ton
0: interesting that's yeah, I'll be thinking about that i I've experienced a little bit of that too, not really appreciating where I am or what what has already happened what what my contribution is or even what my you know beyond contribution sort of what the reality is what's reality (laughs) the reality is you've shown up like this and this and this today and that i think i think a lot of it is rejecting a lot of the cultural societal ideas of what we should be doing every day you know defining our own levels of success and what what success really means to you is it the money i mean we know it shouldn't be the money we shouldn't be all these things but like what is it then you know and i i have my own answers but i don't know that i had to actually mindfully do that i had to do that on purpose to define why i want what i want what i want and why i want it and be clear on that right
1: i mean that's uh, i do a whole coaching exercise with my clients around def- defining your own success because the problem is is we measure our success against other people's standards or other people's definition of success, which is always going to leave us frustrated and, un- and unfulfilled because it's not our own definition. Again, it's what society says, or it's what we've been told through our own domestication process. So defining your own uh, definition of success are centered around your values and what matters to you most, I think, is, is really is what we're aiming towards
0: yeah I think you also have to go the wrong way. I think you have to to pursue the the carrots, all the carrots you know and and see how unfulfilling that is and how you still wake up your yourself the next day yeah you 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 it feels great in the moment, and then the next day you wake up and i I listen to this to Rob Bell I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he has this great thing about there is no it like if you think your success. Your your happiness or your you know your your success is hinges on a a person or an event or a certain threshold that you're going to get to and then when you get there that there isn't it there isn't it but I think you have to change I think you have to experience that it's just like sobriety you can you can hear all about it but it's an experiential thing
1: well it's just like love and light right you have to know what love isn't to know what love is you got to know darkness mm-hmm. to know the light and i just keep coming back to your title of we are the luckiest and i you know you i say it all the time but i do feel so lucky to have gone through the hell and put other people through it to be where i'm at today because it almost just streamlines you into the work you know you talked about people will do everything to avoid the work yeah. and my mess has has reminded me and having a having 3 years of sobriety and then Having a, having a relapse and now having another eight years of sobriety, that relapse is the best thing that ever happened to me because it was my reminder when there was less at stake that the work will never stop. And it's not just work from not drinking and using. This is about being free, like emotional, right. and being comfortable in my own skin every day. And so that's why I feel I'm the luckiest. And then there's the people. I mean, just yeah. talking to YouTube right now, that is because of our mess.
0: Yeah, 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 just, absolutely.
1: You nailed, absolutely nailed your your book title.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, everyone has to do this work. It's human work that everybody has to do. It's just we have a sense of urgency about it, right? Because the stakes are the stakes get really high. So I'm I'm just as both of you have said, I'm I'm grateful that 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 urgency happened, just as gnarly as it was.
2: What would you say to somebody that knows? they're hearing these things and it's starting to resonate, but, you know, they're still kind of stuck in their mess and their situation. You know, what would you tell them to do next? Like what was a first step that you would give them to kind of get themselves out of their situation?
0: Yeah. I always, I'm always a proponent of beginning to write things down and it's one, it's something that's free (laughs) Anyone can do it really at any time. And it sounds, I don't know, maybe even silly, but it's scientifically proven, you know, the personal writing type of emotional writing has proven to improve actually health factors. There's a Pennebaker study about personal journaling and writing back in the 90s that has since been followed up. But it also brings things from the unconsciousness into the conscious, which is how we end up changing anything at all is, is that, that's awareness, right? You bring something, there's an act of writing. You're actually tapping into a different part of your brain and you start to uncover, sort of peel these layers back and, and patterns emerge and, and thoughts feelings emerge we get past the level of underneath the level of rational thought and and drop into our bodies more and uh get out of the mind which is what we think we are all the time and it's really not the least intelligent part of us right so start writing you drop into the, the body a bit and the unconscious and you can start to really with if you maintain an attitude of curiosity you can start to reveal things to yourself and that's always the the best easiest first step i think it's something i do i do consistently just it, it's a good sort of like brushing teeth it's like a good mental health practice for me and then the next thing would be to open your mouth and say the thing that you're worried about that you're scared of to another human being
1: i love it it's like what we talked about earlier about getting out what's inside of you and if you don't get it out it eats you up from the inside out and that is totally. that is the power of of writing and and then verbalizing it, sharing it, right. maybe sharing it with somebody that you really really
0: trust. Yeah, and that that for some can be as scary as being chased by a saber toothed tiger. The fear is that big, feels that difficult. We depending on how you grew up and what your family's like, and you know if you if you are a professional athlete who's supposed to maintain the standard of masculinity, like that can be. Huge step that can be really hard to do.
1: Well, we know we don't do this journey alone, and I know you've had a lot of people in your corner who've had your back no matter what, but who's that one person for you that gets your comeback story shout out?
0: Oh, I gotta say my daughter. Yeah, she's 12. So she and she doesn't know the details because she's too young for that, and it would be inappropriate, but she's been my my why all along and she has taught me what it means to actually love some someone and to truly want the best for someone in the most pure unfiltered undemanding way all of that sounds really nice but what that has done for me over the years and I actually write about this in my book because like we've been talking about self-criticism and and shame, and it can be so, so pervasive in our lives, especially when we've done stuff that we have to be ashamed about, you know, and the self beating, right? I, I, one of the things I learned to do because I would witness how I felt and talk to my daughter was start to talk to myself that way, start to reparent myself in that way. And I wouldn't have learned that without her. I wouldn't have experienced that without her. And so she's in that sense been my greatest teacher. And she also has been, is it gets the shout out because she doesn't care about any of this external stuff. You know, she didn't give a shit that I published. She thinks it's fine that I published a book, but I'm not an author to her. I'm not a podcaster. I'm not any of this outward stuff. I'm her mother and, and it grounds me to the truest essence and purpose that I have here, which is really important.
1: Shout out to your daughter. That's amazing. Well, we just want to thank you for showing up. I want to acknowledge you personally for how you show up. And looking back, you. I think you were probably one of the first people that, that kind of came out and talked about your sobriety publicly. And I talk about mm-hmm. this with Darren too, where he's kind of the lone wolf in the NFL world. And we're seeing mm-hmm. the first follower and other people who he, he's given permission to. So what you're doing is amazing. The work you're doing is amazing. I see you in your purpose and I'm super grateful to have you on our show today.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks to both of you for, for having me on and being who you are in the world too.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, me, it's important to be around people that make us feel like human beings, that we don't always have to do things and that we can just open up and be real. And every time I've had a conversation with you, uh, I feel like I can do that and I'm, I know that anybody else that has an opportunity feels that way as well. So thank
0: you. Oh, thank you. Thanks.
1: So where can our guests find you?
0: Yeah. I'm all of my work is on Laura which is my website and I have a podcast and social media accounts and all that. And my, my company, my sobriety community for people who are actually looking for support in sobriety is called the luckiest club. and It's at that, at that domain name, the luckiest club. So direct people there
1: amazing and that will all be in the show notes well thanks again we appreciate you and with that we're out of here
2: this is what i represent I'm staying true till i'm six down it might take a little bit okay. but every king's gonna get crowned